0: I'm Courtney Smith, and I'm Elise Sharp, and we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love
1: for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms
0: we will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today,
1: all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone?
0: Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name and, as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've said that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello listeners, this is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater-making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe patreon will help us achieve we've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis our bonus content so far includes shakespeare stuff we loved this month posts where we share the shakespeare related products we are obsessing over not only that but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and early modern trans studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Welcome to another Shakespeare Anyone mini-episode. In these mini-episodes, we'll be exploring topics that are related to Shakespeare but aren't necessarily connected to whatever play we've been discussing.
1: And they're mini because, well, they're shorter than our other episodes. They're like quartos if the regular episodes are folio editions.
0: In today's Thanksgiving mini-episode, we'll be discussing post-colonial theory in Shakespeare. And there is a lot to discuss here. Since we haven't covered any of Shakespeare's plays that include postcolonial themes, this episode is a continuation of our intro to postcolonial theory in Shakespeare, this time focusing on immigrants, quote unquote others, and foreign commodities.
1: And as Corey continues writing these episodes, she acknowledges that the study of postcolonial theory in Shakespeare is so vast that we still need to cover this topic as a miniseries. Subsequent episodes will discuss the colonization of Ireland anti-Semitism in The Merchant of Venice, racism in Othello, the aftermath of colonialism, and, of course, post-colonial performance, past and present.
0: In addition to our mini-series, we will dive deeper into this topic during our The Tempest, Othello, and Merchant of Venice series, respectively.
1: The reason we are releasing this episode on Thanksgiving is because we believe in deconstructing and decolonizing our readings of, as we said in our trailer, this old white dude, William Shakespeare. Art is not created in a vacuum. People create the art we consume for a reason. So, let's re-examine the Renaissance man through colonialism.
0: We also want to acknowledge Jotsna G. Singh's 2019 book, Shakespeare and Postcolonial Theory, published by Art and Shakespeare, as our primary source today. And, as we will be discussing colonialism, we will cover topics that may be triggering for some people. Please listen with care.
1: Quick recap. Post colonial theory is the academic critical cultural study of European colonialism and imperialism, focusing on the human consequences of the control and exploitation of colonized peoples and their lands. And boy, did England do a lot of colonizing during the last 400 years! The British Empire was composed of colonies and territories that were ruled under the United Kingdom, often through invasion and force. Some of those territories include the continental United States. Ireland and Scotland, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, India, and portions of Africa, amongst others.
0: The British Empire's goal was to extend England's authority around the world, often for economic and religious purposes. The empire was at its strongest during the 18th and 19th centuries, but it didn't completely fall until the late 20th century after a series of uprisings for independence by the colonized.
1: The British Empire also included the original 13 colonies of the United States, which leads us to Thanksgiving. Without historical context in mind and restorative justice in place, Thanksgiving celebrates the horrifying legacy of English and European colonization that led to the slaughter of the indigenous peoples and their culture. It's misleading to teach a tale of unity when, less than a generation after the supposed meal between the English pilgrim colonizers and the Wampanoags, the two groups were at war and the American government systematically destroyed Native sovereignty. In addition, Native peoples and their allies call Thanksgiving the National Day of Mourning.
0: If you're listening to this episode and are unsure of what to do about the Thanksgiving holiday because the history is so bleak, stick around for the end of the episode. We have suggestions about how to begin ethically celebrating this moral dilemma. So now, let's tie colonialism to our main man, William Shakespeare. But
1: how? Last Thanksgiving, we discussed the colonial imagination. To sum up that mini-episode, early modern England's colonial imagination was a result of trade and sea exploration made possible by an emerging British empire. While Shakespeare didn't participate in proto-colonial activities directly, he and his plays might have been influenced by the travel writers who were documenting their travels as well as the people they encountered abroad. Go back and listen if you haven't already. So, now that we've covered our bases, let's dive in. London, the city, its theatres, and its society, was the ground zero of England's initial colonial ambitions that resulted in an influx of foreign commodities and peoples into the city. While most studies of Elizabethan class division, vagrancy, and immigrants do not typically recognize or acknowledge any racial or ethnic mix of the population, thanks to saying, we're going to do just that. So, let's reassess the racial, ethnic, and cultural perspectives of a global early modern London.
0: England had contact with many non-European groups around the globe during the early modern era, including with the Ottomans and Moors based on military and religious competition, with the Safavids in Persia and the Mughals in India based on commercial and political relations, with indigenous Americans based on colonization, and with sub-Saharan Africans based on the slave trade. Commerce validated these expansions, which materialized into merchant companies, including the East India Company in 1600, Levant Company in 1581, and Muscovoy Company in 1555.
1: Due to England's mercantile relations abroad, London became a dynamic, cosmopolitan city full of material culture from places beyond the West. One snapshot of the convergence of worldwide goods comes from a Swiss traveler, Thomas Platter, who, during his trip to England in 1599, observed tobacco in English alehouses, first learnt of from the Indians, unquote. Platter then describes a cabinet of curiosities owned by a Mr. Cope, a citizen of London. Mr. Cope's curios, quote, with queer foreign objects in every corner, unquote, include an African charm made of teeth, an embalmed child, and porcelain from China, quote-unquote, heathen idols, among other Eastern costumes, clothes, plumes, and other exotic items.
0: And it wasn't just foreign goods that can be found in early modern England foreign people also spent time in the city. A documented account of a portrait of a Moorish ambassador, Abd-Elohed ben Masoud ben Mohammed Anoun, known as Hamet Zarif in England, provides an image of a Mahatmatan, now referred to as Mohammedan, or a follower of Mohammed, in the streets of England. He spent six months in England in 1600, and his Moroccan group attended Queen Elizabeth's Ascension Day celebrations that November. This embassy took place just before Shakespeare wrote Othello, so it's possible Shakespeare may have witnessed English responses to these elite Muslims.
1: It's important to note that English images of Islamic cultures, their customs, attires, and worship, were also increasingly changing due to actual contacts with Muslim empires around the Mediterranean. With the advent of print culture, information about the Ottomans and Moors spread, complicating the traditional association of Muslims with acts of violence, treachery, cruelty, and wrath. Quote, It was difficult for more learned Europeans, or those who lived in closer proximity, to demonize Islam, and so there were Europeans who rejected the popular and learned demonizations of Islam. Unquote.
0: But please don't let this make you too optimistic about a growing tolerance of non-white people in early modern England. Historical and cultural references inform us of the presence of Black Africans who lived, visited, and worked in London. But in 1596, Queen Elizabeth issued a proclamation calling for the expulsion of an early modern word for Black people that I am not going to use on this podcast, and quote-unquote Blackamores from England. She issued for them to be transported to Spain in exchange for English prisoners to appease, quote, troubles between her and the King of Spain, unquote. Big yikes, Elizabeth.
1: Luckily, for these actual human beings and not just goods for Elizabeth to trade, the first edict did not work because citizens refused to give up Africans to those traders.
0: But Elizabeth didn't stop there. In 1601, another warrant appeared in Elizabeth's name requiring the transportation of, again, this early modern word that I am not going to use, and quote unquote, blackamoors out of her realm to Iberia. She planned to send, quote, 89 black moors for very good exchange, unquote, in exchange for English prisoners. But black immigrants didn't ever pose a threat to English livelihoods and, in spite of Elizabeth's efforts, continued to live in England throughout the Renaissance, comprising somewhere between one and 3% of the London populace.
1: While most early modern documentary materials only offer passing references to a few blacks in London, we do want to mention the illuminating work of Imtiaz Habib, in Black Lives in the English Archives, 1500-1677. to 1677. According to Habib, quote, the book's aim is to establish a black population's presence as a known, even if denied, ethnic group, unquote. His all-encompassing use of the term to include Ethiopian, Egyptian, Moor, and Indian, among others, adds a range of non-British, quote-unquote, others in and around London.
0: And England's far-reaching enterprises, like the East India Company, also brought the beginnings of an East Indian presence to London. Samuel Purchase wrote in his 1625, Purchase His Pilgrims, quote, and now we see London and Indian Mart, unquote. Thomas Middleton's pageants for the grocer's company staged both spice and Indian figures, quote, altering the complexion of London, unquote. In addition, the English were said to be, quote, wearing Moorish or Turkish fashion, buying strange trinkets, displaying carpets and porcelain and consuming foodstuff from elsewhere, unquote. We can read these references as a change in England, and, as Singh argues, allow ourselves to register the presence of East Indians in London.
1: If London was an Indian mart, a place for the consumption of Indian commodities, that might as well have included a very palpable imagined figuration of India and Indians. As we discussed in our Colonial Imagination mini-episode, Shakespeare's audiences were also acquainted with travel narratives, so India may have been, quote, the stuff of a sailor's tavern tale, a map made in the human imagination, unquote.
0: So, this is all happening in London, but how does it show up on early modern stages?
1: The relationship between London and the stage was symbiotic and interdependent. Jean E. Howard's study defines this process, quote, Rather than simply describing London, the stage participated in interpreting it, and giving it social meaning. In these stories, specific locations are transformed into venues defined by particular kinds of interactions, whether between citizen and alien, debtor and creditor, prostitute and client, or dancing master and country gentleman. Collectively, they suggest how city space could be used and by whom, and they make place the arena for addressing pressing urban problems, demographic change, and the influx of foreigners and strangers into the city.
0: Essentially, there's a dialogue about foreigners happening in the streets that playwrights are putting on the stage. And while we don't have time to unpack many of those plays, don't worry, we'll address them further when we get to each play, we'd like to focus on some pretty troubling depictions and allusions to these non-white, quote-unquote, others.
1: By the time Shakespeare wrote Othello, the English stage had seen more than 20 plays with bombastic, quote, tawny moors, unquote, and, quote-unquote, blackamores. During the early modern period as a whole, the English stage saw around 31 plays that mentioned quote-unquote Turks and quote-unquote Turkish characteristics. According to Nabil Matar, professor of English at the University of Minnesota, the quote-unquote Turk, according to Europeans, was cruel, tyrannical, and deceiving. The quote-unquote Moor was sexually driven and uncontrollable. And in Othello's texts, the word moor is used 60 times in one form or another. The word Turk is used 16 times, and neither are used kindly. Shakespeare's Turk is a, quote, malignant and turbaned, man, or a, quote-unquote, circumcised dog, while his good white Christians, quote-unquote, turn Turk if they behave immorally.
0: In addition to Othello, These other plays wrote of rampaging Ottoman armies led by quote-unquote Grand Turks. The Turk plays, as they are called, drew on fears and fantasies of Islamic Turks threatening English Christendom. In Christopher Marlowe's Tamburlaine, Part 1, Tamburlaine, after defeating the Turkish emperor Bajazeth, burns the Quran and insults the Islamic prophet Muhammad. Shakespeare's Prince Hal in Henry IV, Part 2 also alludes to fears of Islam, reassuring his court, quote, this is the English, not the Turkish court, unquote. This sentiment, English values good, Turkish values bad, is not unusual. In fact, after the Protestant Reformation, a pamphlet from the Catholic Cardinal of Canterbury, who was upset by Henry VIII, referred to the new Protestants as, quote, the new Turkeys, unquote, or new threats popping up in English Catholic society.
1: And while early modern plays reinforced London's fear of Muslims, whether they be Ottoman, Mediterranean, or North African, they had less to say about India. Indian characters are not portrayed in, and India is hardly referenced to, in Shakespeare's plays. However, the quote-unquote Indian Mart of London can be examined through the integral plot device of the changeling Indian boy from A Midsummer Night's Dream. In her essay, Obscured by Dreams, Race, Empire, and Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, Margot Hendricks lays out a question regarding the alluded-to changeling Indian boy. Quote, What implications about race and early modern England's mercantilist and or colonist-imperialist ideology might we draw from Shakespeare's use of India? Unquote.
0: Hendricks, along with many others, view India as the play's engagement with mercantilism, as well as a metaphor for the demand for eastern commodities, evoking an exchange between goods and bodies. Raman views the Indian boy in relation to practices of colonialism. Quote, if the Indian boy represents his absent mother and her relationship to Titania, colonial discourse concretely represents his value through the foreign merchandise destined to be consumed in the home country. Despite their differences, Obron and Titania's economies both rest upon commodifying the East." Unquote.
1: So, while Shakespeare depicted few non-white, or assumed to be non-white, characters on the early modern stage, what these characters said about the foreign and immigrant, quote-unquote, others, comes from somewhere, and was meant to communicate a strong opinion about these peoples and places to its audiences now, ripe for post-colonial discourse. That's all the time we have today. So, to sum up this episode… Mercantilism
0: complicated early modern identity by labeling foreigners and immigrants, quote unquote, others, while also consuming their material culture. In addition to the material, a post-colonial lens allows us to imagine Shakespearean audiences as cosmopolitan and worldly, enjoying imaginings, good or bad, about Africans, Middle Easterners, and Indians.
1: And while it can be uncomfortable to read Shakespeare through a post-colonial lens, ignoring the possibilities of such a reading only further ignores the public discourse surrounding early modern England's ambition to colonize.
0: And before we let you go, if you choose to celebrate Thanksgiving, we have some suggestions for celebrating the holiday that we hope make you feel less icky. First, unlearn revisionist history and learn real history. It may be uncomfortable, but remember, Native lives over white feelings. Then. Discuss this history with family and friends.
1: Second, donate to your local tribe, either money, resources, or your time. Third, support Native activists and become an ally. Get involved in restorative justice and diversify your feed by following Native activists, organizations, and artists. Fourth, and finally, support Native businesses, art, and academia. Today, we recommend listening to the All My Relations podcast episode, Thanks Taking or Thanksgiving.
0: And that's post-colonial theory. Keep an eye out for future post-colonial mini-episodes.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description.
0: For more, you can visit our website shakespeareanyone.com Follow us on Instagram at ShakespeareAnyonePod or Twitter at ShakespeareAnyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare Any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast.
1: Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Coriolanus, Act 3, Scene 3, Said by Coriolanus Thus I turn my back. There is a world elsewhere.